This book is dedicated to the men and women of the British Police Service, past and present. I'm very proud to have been a member of your family. Introduction I'm no longer a police officer, but every single day, memories about some of the things that I did over the course of a long career in policing pass through my mind. Running breathless through suburban back gardens, vaulting over garden fences and demolishing some of them in the process, whilst chasing a burglar. Rolling around on the pavement with a violent criminal who's trying to escape, desperately trying to get to my radio to call for help. Sat in the back of my surveillance van in central London, stripped to my underwear on a boiling hot summer's day with sweat pouring down my face. Patiently watching a doorway through the viewfinder of my camera before snapping the image of some terrorists meeting in public for the first time. Crying with laughter at the results of a complex, well-planned and cruel practical joke played on a colleague who was sent on a wild goose chase to the other side of London to pick up a non-existent prize of £500. Removing the soiled clothes from a dead child in a mortuary and taking them to a high street laundrette before delivering them back to his heartbroken parents. Can you imagine having a job where every day you cannot wait to start work and where every day is completely different? A job where you and the teams that you're a part of change thousands of people's lives for the better and you all have incredible fun in the process. Can you imagine having a job where you meet every type of person from every single part of this rich, diverse, vibrant nation? and offer them the hand of friendship. A job where you can encounter the deep sadness, joy, fear, and excitement of life in the course of a single day. I had that job for 30 years, between 1989 and 2019. However, somehow, something went very badly wrong somewhere along the way. It's very hard to pinpoint when I thought for the first of many times that everything was going wrong in British policing. I don't know exactly when this realisation occurred, but what I do know for certain is that those tragicomic events began to become so frequent that what had previously felt like isolated moments of pathos quite quickly became the new normal. Was it in 1998? when the expression added value entered the lexicon of ambitious but clueless senior managers? Such a manager had told me to leave his office after failing to make a decision about a highly time-sensitive piece of terrorist intelligence because I hadn't added enough value. This was my first memorable encounter with one of a new breed of senior police manager who could tell you everything about how to get through a promotion process but hardly anything about doing the actual job or catching bad people. Was it when the Metropolitan Police Service, where I was serving at the time, was branded institutionally racist by Sir William Macpherson in 1999? After hearing about the Macpherson Report's findings, we all sat looking at each other aghast with a sinking realisation 
of what this would mean for an entire generation of police officers who had overwhelmingly acted and behaved impeccably to everyone, regardless of their colour, race, sexuality or social standing. Perhaps it was in 2004, when, as a uniform sergeant, I listened to a pair of senior officers berating one of my sergeant colleagues for failing to find a plausible alternative explanation for what was obviously a domestic burglary in order to hit the reducing burglary monthly target. Was it in 2009 when my best mate in the police finally decided to throw in the towel after a particularly pompous corporate chief inspector said to him, we need to get buy-in on the forward-looking piece. My very capable and experienced friend told that chief inspector that he had no fucking clue what he was talking about and resigned shortly afterwards in complete exasperation. By the way, that nonsensical expression was quickly included in a hilarious Gilbert and Sullivan-style mini-operetta penned by a talented but equally frustrated detective sergeant. Maybe it was in 2010 when Theresa May delivered crippling cuts to police budgets and made it crystal clear that she was going to sort out the police. To be fair, whilst this was awful, the rot had well and truly set in by this stage, and May, in her own unique, soulless and robotic way, was simply delivering the coup de grace. I don't know exactly when I realised it had all gone wrong, but on Friday the 29th of March 2019 at 5pm, I took my work mobile phone out of my pocket and switched it off before walking out of police headquarters for the last time as a serving police officer. I had completed my contracted 30 years of service and very soon the organisation would class me as a police pensioner. In this book, I will take you through my incredibly varied career from the start right to the very end. Perhaps then you will form your own judgments as to what went wrong. Because it's you and people like you that I joined the police to help. It's you that I care about. I also care deeply about my police colleagues past and present. Well, maybe not all of them, but most of them. And I'm writing this for them as well as for you. Over a period of 30 years, I was a uniform constable, a detective constable on counter-terrorism investigation, a photographer on a counter-terrorism surveillance team, a uniform sergeant, a detective sergeant in a criminal investigation department, a uniformed inspector, a detective inspector in child abuse investigations, a detective inspector in counter-terrorism, a detective chief inspector in an intelligence department, an operational superintendent, and a superintendent running a national data analytics project. Phew. I started my career typing reports in triplicate using carbon paper and old typewriters, and I ended up running a predictive analytics project using artificial intelligence, supercomputers, and cloud storage to analyse 500 million lines of data relating to millions of individuals in seconds. I want to try to explain what it's really like to be in the police service. 
and not the teledrama police with their completely improbable storylines involving detectives who single-handedly sort everything out in 45 minutes, nor, for that matter, the police in fly-on-the-wall TV shows who self-consciously ham it up for the benefit of the cameras. I also want to write about what it's been like to be in the police over the past 30 years. How has the job changed? When and why did those changes happen? What was it like to live through this tumultuous period in the history of British policing? But perhaps more than anything else, I want to try to understand how the British police service that I joined 30 years ago and I love so much came to be so horribly damaged within what feels like quite a short period of time. Neighbourhood policing is now almost non-existent because of the loss of tens of thousands of police officers, police staff and the closure of hundreds of police stations. Detection rates for crime solved by police have plummeted and are now at an all-time low. The charge and prosecution rate for total recorded crime in England and Wales sat at a relatively stable and respectable rate of around 16% in the years leading up to 2015. This figure has steadily fallen year on year to a rather dismal and embarrassing rate of 6%. The statistics for fraud are even worse. In 2018-19, there were 227,667 victims of fraud living in the three largest force areas in England, London, the West Midlands and Greater Manchester. Only 2,164 of these, or 0.95%, resulted in any sort of prosecution. This means that today, any member of the British public that is unfortunate enough to become a victim will have little expectation that the police will catch or charge the criminal who is responsible. And for criminals, there has never been a better time to commit crime in the UK. The number of murders in England and Wales rose by 35% between 2013 and 2017. Hospital admissions for assault with a sharp object in England and Wales rose by 41% from 2014 to 2019. And offences involving firearms increased by 42% from 2013 to 2019. This increase in murder is despite the huge improvements in emergency medical care that is now routinely delivered by highly trained paramedics at the scene and the A&E doctors who learned so much about keeping people alive from colleagues returning from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts during this period. God only knows how many murders we would have had if those paramedics and doctors were ill-equipped and badly trained. From 2015 to 2019, the cuts to police numbers really began to bite. Drug-related violence was identified as the single biggest cause of the rise in homicides, increasing from 232 in 2009 to 319 in 2018. Coincidence? I don't think so. This was the period in which I and my colleagues in the West Midlands, London and Manchester were all running around as if our hair was on fire, as we didn't have enough people and resources to do our jobs properly. Ten or fifteen years ago, 
a victim of burglary would have received a rapid response from uniformed officers who would have conducted an initial investigation, taken statements and preserved forensic evidence on the scene. This would have been followed up that day by a visit from a forensic scene investigator who would have retrieved forensic evidence, followed by a more comprehensive investigation conducted by a detective. In those days, we solved and prosecuted about 13% of domestic burglaries. Today, it is common for a serious offence like burglary to be recorded over the phone, for there to be no attendance by police, and therefore, for no proper investigation to be carried out. Chief constables and Home Office civil servants will argue that the volume of traditional property crimes, like burglary and car theft, have fallen in the past 10 years and that technology has changed crime and offending in that time. That is true. However, what they won't admit is that the police are now just as unlikely to solve old types of crime, such as burglary, as they are to solve the new crimes committed on the internet. This podcast is sponsored by Aquila Digital. Aquila is a brand new, game-changing, one-stop software solution for law enforcement agencies or any organisation that conducts criminal investigations. Whatever you're investigating, be it volume crime, serious crime, sexual offences, fraud, cybercrime or regulatory breaches, Aquila Digital has it covered. There has never been a greater need to solve more crime. For too long, most frontline officers and investigators have been unable to provide professional service to victims, witnesses and partners because solutions have been far too expensive. What's the point of giving them digital awareness training if they don't have the tools to turn their knowledge into action? Our vision is to empower anyone to conduct a digital investigation. Therefore, Aquila Digital is priced to make it available to your entire workforce, not just a few experts. It solves multiple digital problems for only £150 per user per year typically. Aquila is a comprehensive solution costing a fraction of what existing solutions currently cost and those solutions only solve individual problems. Aquila allows your staff to locate, capture and ingest any digital data, for example, images, videos, files or documents from anyone, anywhere, from any device. It allows members of the public or partners to send evidence or intelligence overtly, covertly or even anonymously for investigators to review and start building a case. Evidence and intelligence is fully searchable and can be enriched and verified securely from the internet or any connected third-party system. The entire investigation is audited and stored in the background to ensure compliance with law and policy. The completed investigation can then be shared securely with legal teams or authorised third parties with a touch of a button. To find out more or to get in touch, go to www.aquillatransfer.com. That's A-Q-U-I-L-A transfer, all one word, dot com. Empower your staff to solve more crime with Aquila Digital. In 2019, Boris Johnson realised that they'd screwed up badly and he made a commitment to recruit 20,000 new officers. However, with retirements and an increasing flood of resignations, over 50,000 new officers need to be recruited just to get back to pre-2019 
2010 levels. Flooding the service with rookies in the next three years will create its own headaches, and trying to solve the problem in this way feels rather like Boris trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube after Theresa May already squeezed it out. There has also been a corresponding collapse in the criminal justice system, which is generally evidenced by a dramatic reduction in cases coming to court. This was bad before COVID-19 crisis, but now, in 2021, due to a massive backlog in cases, it is unlikely that even a fairly simple case will see the inside of a court for several years after a defendant is charged. This then further reduces the likelihood of a conviction because victims get fed up waiting and withdraw their cooperation. Witnesses forget what happened and suspects walk free. The final straw for me, and what propelled me to write this book, was the shameful sight of police officers running away from protesters, many of whom were just kids, in Whitehall during the Black Lives Matter protests in June 2020. The police service were then routinely lambasted by the media and politicians for either intervening or failing to intervene after the chaotic implementation of constantly changing COVID-19 restrictions. How did we get to this very unhappy situation? When I joined the police in 1989, I was confident that the organisation I worked for and wider society would support me in my role. The law-abiding public trusted the police to exercise considerable discretion in deciding how to respond to calls for service. We told time wasters to stop wasting our time, and we prioritised those who needed our help most. Crucially, there were enough of us to confront and control lawlessness on the streets and provide a visible presence to reassure the public. Thirty years later, I left a fearful, enfeebled service that had been decimated by a combination of government cuts and 20 years of political meddling. The police are now often too busy trying to sort out pathetic squabbles on social media to deal with serious criminality. Furthermore, officers now have almost no expectation whatsoever of being supported by the courts, the media, the government, or for that matter, their own organisation if they make an honest mistake. Today it's much more likely for members of the public to stand and film a police officer struggling with someone in the street and then upload the footage to YouTube rather than do the more courageous and decent thing of trying to help them. There's also something of a chasm between frontline police officers and many of their senior leaders. There are hundreds of examples of really fantastic senior police officers nationally. But generally speaking, frontline officers don't trust many of their own leaders. They despise a lot of them as being weak and woke, vying to outdo one another with virtue-signalling Twitter posts promoting their latest gimmicky initiative, pandering to people who hate the police, and putting their own career prospects before the best interests of the public the organisation, or their own people. Uniformed officers and investigators will often roll their eyes behind the backs of senior managers who talk in riddles 
about customer journeys, future visioning, the latest statement of strategic intent, or multi-stakeholder partnership engagement. The police officers under the command would much rather hear about how they plan to catch and convict more violent criminals and drug dealers. When I joined the Metropolitan Police in London in 1989, I soon became familiar with the often repeated refrain from officers that the job's fat. That expression, always shortened in conversation simply to TJF, has been in constant usage since I joined and is often used by British police officers in a similar way to FUBAR, the US military expression for fucked up beyond all repair, or SNAFU, situation normal, all fucked up. TJF would generally be said contemptuously by an officer ordered to do something pointless that didn't make any sense. Alternatively, an officer might say it in response to some new policy announcement that would tie everyone up even further in red tape. A policy in all likelihood dreamt up by someone at headquarters who wanted to make a name for themselves and get promoted, or perhaps someone from the small army of bean counters at the Home Office. Many years ago, early in my service, I met a very elderly gent who, to my delight, told me some fascinating stories about how he had served for 30 years in the police in London and had retired in the 1950s after serving throughout the Blitz. Quick as a flash, he asked me, Is the job still fucked? I laughingly confirmed that yes, it was. The point here is that British police officers have been using the expression TJF for a very, very long time. Therefore, it's tempting, particularly for certain disreputable politicians or senior officers who are in a state of institutional denial, to argue that everything's fine. However, only the most deluded, disingenuous or willfully blind commentator could try to claim that British police service is in a good place. It's not. It's in a terrible mess after more than 20 years of political meddling from parties on both sides of the political divide. In this book, I will describe what it's like to work through the years when British police officers were able to use a lot of discretion to protect the public and focus on fighting crime, albeit in a way that was arguably lacking in accountability and transparency. Then I will talk about the cash-rich years of policing under New Labour, when policing did well financially but became tied up with all sorts of home office performance measurements that resulted in a culture of trying to hit a variety of bizarre targets that had almost nothing to do with keeping the public safe. I will finally describe the painful and horrible years when Theresa May was Home Secretary and then Prime Minister and the impact of losing 20,000 officers and 23,000 support staff on the police's ability to protect the public. I will consider whether the British Police Service has now gone beyond a tipping point from which it may be difficult or impossible to recover. There is now a definite sense that the British public no longer knows what to expect from the police, and the police no longer understand what anyone expects of them. Society has changed beyond recognition in the past 30 years and attitudes to all sorts of things have changed for the better. It would therefore be silly 
to suppose that the police could or should be exempt from any of those changes. The UK's police service is an infinitely more professional, inclusive, tolerant and enlightened organisation today than it was in 1989. Still, clearly, something has gone badly wrong. So in this book, I will consider whether the job is actually fucked, and if it is, how and why did that happen? I need to make it very clear that the views I express in this book are my own opinion. However, these opinions are shared by pretty much everyone I know who has worked in policing, past and present. Those who have left policing are generally very relieved indeed to have gone, and those who still serve feel unable to speak out and powerless to change anything. I accept that this book will make for uncomfortable reading for some, particularly those ex-chief constables who conspired in all this, caved into political pressure and then presided over an increasingly dysfunctional organisation. I'm not a political person and I have no affiliation whatsoever to any political party. I'm rather boringly centrist on pretty much every political issue. Growing up in the madness of Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 1980s was quite enough to put me off politics for life. I've tried to be as even-handed as possible in this regard. Both Labour and Conservative politicians created this mess, and on that basis, this book will make the argument for keeping politicians and clueless civil servants well away from public protection. I will also make the argument that we need to start listening to what the majority of the public want the police to do, not a tiny, vociferous subset of the public, i.e. self-appointed community leaders, left-wing activists and the chattering classes in North London dinner parties. I mean the actual British public. Some will accuse me of looking back at a bygone era of policing through rose-tinted spectacles. Certainly, I am nostalgic about those days when I first joined the police, but there were many things that badly needed to change when I first joined. Nonetheless, in those days, unlike today, at least British police officers knew what they were actually expected to do. When I started writing TJF, I had no real intention of it becoming a book. However, once I started writing, the words began pouring out of me in a way that took me by surprise, and I quickly realised that there was more to this than just leaving a legacy. So, having now had nearly two years to reflect on the previous 30, here are the reasons I've written this book. Firstly, in keeping with my original intentions, I wanted to write it for my four kids to educate them, hopefully inspire them, and ensure that they never fall into the trap of lazily stereotyping police officers or unfairly criticising them without being in possession of all the facts. I then quickly realised that writing was becoming a cathartic process, helping me make sense of some of the craziness of the past 30 years, the different jobs that I had done, what those jobs had taught me, the great memories of the mostly wonderful colleagues and managers, and the bad memories of the truly terrible ones. I wanted to record my memories of the fun, the fuck-ups, and the fear. Furthermore, 
I discovered that I was holding inside me a great deal of what psychologists might describe as unprocessed trauma. I'd never really had time to think about it properly. I dealt with so much death, much of it violent or gory, and all of it sad and tragic. Coming back to the police station and finding tiny pieces of human tissue caught in the laces of my boots and blood splattered all over my trousers. Memories of horrible road traffic accidents, suicides, murders, industrial accidents, and worst of all, the many dead children from when I was working on child protection. Sitting with a mother and father as they cuddled and talked to the body of their dead child, having to gently explain that the doctors needed to take the child away to obtain tissue samples and evidential swabs. Watching babies being dissected and cut apart by pathologists until they no longer even looked like a baby, more like a raw chicken being cut apart and prepared for the pot. Helping a doctor to undress a dead ten-year-old child who had committed suicide by hanging. The crunching sound of walking through millions of dead flies that had completed their entire life cycle, having fed on the decomposing body of an old man who had died alone in his flat. Desperately trying to keep someone alive using CPR and having to give up after realising it wasn't working. And other memories that are just too disturbing to be shared with you in this book. I wish that those protesters could get out their black marker pens and scribble A cab on their pathetic, shitty little cardboard placards would have a think about that side of policing. When writing, I also realised how angry and frustrated I had felt for years about the scandalously unjust way that UK policing had been treated by politicians and many parts of the media, which has undermined public confidence and the morale of police officers and put the British public in a very great deal more danger as a result. Trashing the police is completely perverse, self-defeating behaviour, rather like ripping all the smoke alarms out of your house, discarding the fire extinguisher and then letting the kids run around with lit sparklers in the middle of the night. It's never going to end well. Over the past ten years or so, all this reckless damage has resulted in the completely unnecessary and avoidable murders of dozens of children and young men up and down the country who have been the victims of knife crime. Many of them would almost certainly still be around today, growing up, sorting themselves out, maybe raising a family. But their names are now forgotten by everyone apart from their own families and friends. The police service has become unable to function effectively in inner city communities and no longer works with young people in schools, building strong, trusted relationships with their teachers, social workers and their families. We no longer have enough people to identify the young people who are going off the rails and help them to access support services. We no longer have eyes and ears in the community to gather intelligence on knife crime and gang membership, nip things in the bud and disrupt serious criminality before it spills over into fatal stabbings and shootings or the exploitation of children by county lines gangs. Through a combination of arrogance, incompetence and reckless indifference, 
a small number of politicians and their advisers have created a public safety crisis in the UK. This may become something of a national security crisis over time, with a significant loss of experience and talent leaving the service and no longer moving up into the units responsible for investigating terrorism and the most serious types of crime. I spent 30 years being trained and equipped to manage critical threats to public safety and national security, so I know what I'm talking about in this regard. The brutal truth is that this government has probably done more to undermine public safety in England and Wales than any hostile foreign power, terrorist organisation or organised crime group could ever dream of. Who needs Russia, North Korea and Al-Qaeda when our politicians are responsible for our safety? Finally, through writing this book, I was confronted with the stark truth reinforced over the past four years of working as a voluntary hospice chaplain, that life is not a dress rehearsal. I have sat and talked with hundreds of terminally ill people of all ages during that time who have described their sadness and sense of loss in the face of their own mortality. Many of them talked about their regrets, but I never spoke to anyone who regretted not making enough money or wishing that they'd spent more time at work. Many of them regretted not following their dreams or putting up with situations that were damaging to their happiness or to their mental or physical health. They regretted broken relationships and wished that they had swallowed their pride and reached out to people who they cared about. It would have been much easier for me to just walk away from policing and get on with the rest of my life when I retired. However, I want to try and speak for police officers in the UK because it feels like very, very few people are doing that and I don't want to have the regret of not having done that one day. If I try and nothing changes, then at least I can look myself in the mirror and say that I tried. I didn't join the police for an easy life, so why should police retirement be any different?